Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us. Tonight, we bring you a very special 5 by 15 on the war in Ukraine. Today marks day 285 of the Russian invasion. And as the war enters its winter phase, we're very glad to have two speakers with us this evening who can make sense of this devastating conflict. From the political factors that motivated Vladimir Putin's decision to invade, to everyday stories of hope and survival on the Ukrainian front line. The award-winning journalist Luke Harding has written an extraordinary book called Invasion. It is, as various people have said, a compelling, moving and important account of the first months of this war. As Lise Doucette noted in her review of the book for The Observer, this conflict has had a rather astonishing arc. From the initial disbelief and fear back in February that Ukraine would be outmanned and outgunned by Russia's military force, to an inspiring tale of perseverance and unwavering belief in victory. This is the story told by Luke's book. Please do buy yourselves a copy and all author royalties from this edition will go to the DEC's Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal. Details for both of our speakers' books will be posted in the chat this evening. Luke is a foreign correspondent for The Guardian and has reported on wars around the world. Between 2007 and 2011, he was The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief. He was expelled from Russia by the Kremlin and this summer placed on an official blacklist. Luke is the author of several other books, including Mafia State, WikiLeaks and The Snowden Files. Tonight, Luke will be in conversation with Gideon Rackman, the chief foreign affairs correspondent for the Financial Times. Gideon is also the author of the brilliant book The Age of the Strongman, which examines the new nationalism in Russia, in Russia, Europe and beyond, and asks what forces are in place to keep autocrats in check. As usual with 5 by 15 Gideon Luke will be in conversation for around 40-45 minutes, after which time you'll get to ask your questions. So please do post any questions you have for Luke and Gideon in the Q&A box at any time during the event, and we'll get to as many as we can. Gideon, over to you. Okay, thanks very much, Jack, and thanks to, uh, to you all for organising this event. It's a great uh, privilege to speak to Luke. I last saw him at a kind of rather civilised uh, London dinner party but you know before the invasion before all those horrors were unleashed i've spent the last couple of days reading the book and it really is a great achievement so congratulations i mean i think the the blend of reportage and analysis really works brilliantly and i wasn't sure there was that much left to be said about the ukraine war but you convinced me you know i learned a lot through through, through reading the book so um well done and thanks for for joining us um so Luke, you, you start fair enough at the beginning at that the at the you know the, the the days before the invasion and uh like you i mean i remember i was i was not in ukraine i was at the munich security conference where Zelensky appeared and i remember going to a dinner of ukrainians having been told in no uncertain terms by sort of british and american that the war would start next week but the ukrainians did not believe it or at least some of the ones i was talking to were were still saying you know maybe it won't happen you, however, you were in Kiev and you were convinced that Putin would invade and had been convinced for some time. So so why was that? Yeah, um, well, hello, everybody. Um, thank, thank you, Gideon. Thank you, um, Jack. Thank you, 5 by 15 uh, Great to be with you this evening. I, I mean, I, I think the, the reason I was so kind of pessimistic was was based on the fact that I spent four years in, in, in Moscow and had been there as a correspondent for The Guardian between 2007 and 2011, when really Russia was getting uh, darker and was going, you know, further down this autocratic strongman path to, 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 to use the sort of noun from, from your very good book, The Age of the Strongman. Um, and 
you, you know, when, when I, I mean, it's kind of pointless sort of trying to peer inside Vladimir Putin's head, but, but generally speaking, if you've got um, a kind of bad option with, with Russia, Russian sort of policy making, foreign policy, and, and a really bad option, it, it, it's always a good idea to bet on the really bad option. And, and basically, like everyone else, in the autumn of, of 2021, I looked at these tanks being uh, sent um, demonstratively, I would say, to, to Ukraine's borders, to, to Belarus, over the Kerch Strait to occupy Crimea. Um, and at the same time, Putin was making these crazy maximalist demands saying NATO should essentially retreat from Central Europe and the clock should be turned back to the early 1990s. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I assume this was for real. This was not a bluff or a diplomatic maneuver or a stratagem that actually this presaged a, a large scale uh, military operation. And so, so what I did was in, in December of last year, I went, I mean, I've been covering Ukraine for about 15 years, but I went back to the front line to Donetsk, where I'd been in 2014, when Putin had kickstarted a, a sort of pro-Moscow uprising, if you can call it that, in the east of the country. I spent time with Ukrainian soldiers. We got shot at by Russian snipers as we were going along a muddy field towards uh, a sort of frontline airport position. Uh, and then back in Kiev, I mean, you're, you're right. I, I mean, I was talking to, to Ukrainian sources and they were acknowledging the threat was real, but also there was, it had been Christmas. There was this air of kind of unreality about it. But the one thing that they were conceding in January was that there was this place called Mariupol, which was very vulnerable. I've been to Mariupol in 2014. And so I went to Mariupol and made a film for the, for the, for the Guardian. Um, this city on the Sea of Azov, important Ukrainian port, about 15 kilometers away from where, uh, you know, Russia and its proxies were, were encamped. And where, again, the, the were, there were gunshots, there were, you know, grenade launchers being fired, and, and there, was, there was death. So I went to Mariupol um, and then sort of drove along the, the, uh, the Sea of Azov towards the border with Crimea. And, and it was surreal. I, I was looking at Crimea, again, with Ukrainian forces. This is in sort of late January, early February. And, you know, there, there, were, there were a few, a bit of pedestrian traffic. It was incredibly tranquil beautiful with ducks and isthmuses and and so on um and it just sort of seemed to me driving there driving through Kherson that 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 actually ukraine was unprepared for what was coming and you're you're right gideon i mean the 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 brits and the americans uh, you know i think perhaps haunted rightly or wrongly by what happened with iraq were very very clear in their intelligence and, and they were saying that this actually was going to happen but but actually, the government of Vladimir Zelensky at that point, sort of sagging in the opinion polls, was in a state of denial. And I'm not sure if this was strategic denial because secretly they were preparing, or actually they, they just could not recognize the, the whirlwind, uh, the tornado that was coming towards them. Yeah, and you, and you record in the book, I mean, you met Zelensky just a few days before the invasion, um, and he's wavering on this subject of whether whether there was going to be an attack. Um, but talk a bit about the transformation in Zelensky, because I think most people, um, you know, who don't, who are not professionals following Ukraine, only get to know him after the war and see him, you know, correctly as this heroic figure. But he was a much more equivocal and, and in some ways, a politician in trouble just ahead of the war, wasn't he? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that's r- right. I mean, it, it, it's been a remarkable it's been a remarkable uh, transformation. And I, I note that the Financial Times, my well-thumbed copy of the Financial Times, you, you know, has just named him as Personality of the Year. I think correctly because I, I, he he he's become the, the outstanding global politician. I think of his generation, an extraordinary wartime leader. But but it wasn't it wasn't always like that. And the the kind of great irony is that is that Zelensky won a landslide in 2019. I was in Kiev in the spring of 2019 covering the presidential election on a peace ticket. He basically said, I am the person who will sit down with Vladimir Putin, negotiate peace, end the war in the East. And people bought it. I mean, they were tired of war. And Petro Poroshenko, his incumbent rival, was a more strident, nationalist, anti-Kremlin figure, um, you know, the, more of a hawk. And, and Zelensky won. And he kind of tried. And it became clear after a while. I mean, there was a bit of, you know, brief rapprochement that, that Putin was not actually interested in peace whatsoever. Um, and of course, the war carried on. And when I saw Zelensky, just before the invasion, I sort of, this was at a moment when uh, Western diplomatic missions, including the, including the Brits, had pulled their ambassadors out of Kiev and shunted them westward towards Lviv. And Zelensky had made it clear he was very unhappy about this because it, it didn't look too good. And I sort of said, well, you know, wh- 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 why are you so unhappy? And he sort of said, he, he told me, we do not have a titanic situation here. And I kind of I kind of muse in the book whether whether actually you know Ukraine was the Titanic heading towards the the Russian iceberg or actually conversely whether Russia was this kind of imperious invincible ship heading towards Ukraine that 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 you know on the surface looked quite quite small but actually had more to it going on underneath. But wh- whatever your metaphor your 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 conceit, what what happened after invasion and and we can maybe talk a little bit about that day. What was this astonishing uh, transformation? And I explore it in my book. I mean, I think part of it was that Zelensky is a former actor and people are used to him dressing up and playing different roles. So when, when you know, after February the 24th, he started appearing wearing this green T-shirt, you know, in the, in the uniform of a civilian volunteer as a kind of war leader, but also an everyman. Everyone just went, oh, that's Zelensky in a different costume. And they kind of, they, they saw this kind of chameleonic, side to him. And the other thing I think, which I try and explore, is just his astonishing rhetorical, you know, sort of ability. The fact that he's, I think he's the planet's foremost communicator. And there's this sort of, this astonishing video on day three of the invasion when he, he's outside his presidential, presidential palace. Everybody expects him to flee. And he holds the iPhone and he does a 30 second clip and he just goes, Yatut, Yatut, I'm here, I'm here. And for me, that was a kind of pivotal moment in the war. I mean, a lot. I, I was in Kiev at the time, and it, it's impossible to overstate the mood of fear and dread, and and just kind of save yourselfness of that moment. And and Zelensky stayed, and and then of course Kiev survived. Um, and you know, the war the war had the art that you, you set out at the beginning. One one from where you know people you were talking to were saying Ukraine's going to lose absolutely within a week. Yeah, to the point where we're now talking sort of about Ukrainian victory. Mm. And I mean, it, it seems to me it's not just um, Zelensky who comes into much sharper focus for the whole world, but also Ukraine itself. I mean, that I don't think most people, even in Europe, had a particularly distinct picture of Ukraine, and probably the few images they had were not that flattering, you know, a bit poor, a bit corrupt, kind of backward. And then suddenly, um, you know, I think there's been enormous admiration for 
uh, Ukrainian resistance, but also recognition that they're a bit like us. I think that's part of the strong emotional reaction, that it was a more modern, more advanced society than we had realized. And I remember, um, you know, I was at a conference uh, in January and there were a bunch of young Ukrainian MPs and they were, you know, super impressive. And uh, Lawrence Friedman, the professor, you know, was sitting next to me and said, you know, if only we had some MPs like that in Britain, you know, and this was all in English. They were speaking. They were, they were. So tell, tell us a bit about, I mean, you obviously knew Ukraine very, very well and you described Kiev as a sort of modern city and uh, kind of, you know, happening European city before the invasion. But tell us a bit about, yeah, what we should have known about Ukraine and how it's uh, how it's come into focus. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's sort of two things going on here. I mean, in terms of Kiev, I mean, I, I try and sort of conjure Kiev on the invasion when I went to a I was invited to dinner by Andrei Kukov, the, the, the celebrated Ukrainian uh, novelist, who's a kind of, he's a brilliant man. He, he's, a, he's a super writer, the author of numerous sort of playful and, and luminous books. And, and also sort of temperamentally, he was an optimist. So, so um, I, I was writing this rather apocalyptic story for The Guardian. I was late for, for, for this sort of borscht invitation. And I went out, I was staying in the center of Kiev. And, and went out of my hotel, um, which was not very far away from the, the Golden Gate, a Soviet replica of, of one of the original medieval fortifications in Kiev. And, you know, there was a woman outside busking on her violin, playing Edith Piaf numbers. There, there were um, old ladies selling tulips out of buckets. Um, there, there were people dining, couples, families, uh, in, in restaurants or sitting in coffee shops. And the point about Kiev is it is not some gloomy, Soviet backwater. It is a vibrant, modern, European capital of three million people with fantastic coffee, with artisanal pizza, with apps that you can order everything from, you know, taxis to, to you know, paying your, paying your, your, your income tax bill. Um, and it's, it's also full of full of beautiful people. I mean, I don't know if one is allowed to say that, but of both, you know, of, of all and every kind and hipsters going up the cobbled streets on e-scooters. Um, and this world continued right up until the last moment. And and I think I think people had taken their cue from Zelensky. They they were they they knew there was a possibility of invasion, but they didn't want to believe it. And and so when it happened, it was just this shattering moment. And and for me for me personally, I, I you know, I had a call, I had a call um about midnight from a from a Ukrainian contact of mine who said the invasion is going to begin at 4 a.m. Mm. And I went back from this dinner party with this dark velvet sky above me to my hotel. I slept for about two hours, then had a call. And then sure enough, at 4.30 a.m., you know, the bomb started. There was total shock and awe, um, uh, military attack by Russia. And, and what we now know, I mean, it was pretty clear at the time, was the goal was to topple the government, kill Zelensky, liquidate... Ukrainian resistance um, and take over key government institutions. Bring yeah, them- I, yeah I mean, you, you write something that I, I, I didn't know, I mean, perhaps I should have, but that they had pre-positioned uh, sort of traitors, if I can put it that way, who who were in a safe house near and, and tried to break in and kill Zelensky on the first day, or at least capture him. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. And, and then they were basically going to... Of that, you know, they came in from northeast, southwest. Well, they were bombing west, but they came in from three directions, sweeping up from Crimea. And the goal was to uh, devour Ukraine, wipe it from the map, and, and formally an exit by, by summer. And th- this was a, a staggering, now we could say delusional plan, but, mm-hmm. but they were enacting it. Um, and I, I think you, you write at some point that, that you think that Putin's key error 
or one of them was to underestimate or misunderstand the Ukrainian people. He just didn't didn't recognize it as a real place and them as real people. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's a strong element of sort of chauvinism, and you know, Putin is not the first leader to 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 treat Ukrainians as vassals, to use the phrase used by Dmitry Medvedev, um, Putin's predecessor as as president. But but he he wrote this essay, which I explore in Invasion, in the summer of 2021, where essentially he argued. That, that Ukraine was never a state and Ukrainians, Ukrainians and Russians were one people and they, they flow from a sort of similar or identical civilizational beginning point, which is Pr Prince Volodymyr in the 10th century who converted um, Kiev to, to Orthodox Christianity. And, and he, he says that, <clears throat> that Ukraine has been artificially divided from, torn, torn away from Russia by, by, by the Mongols, by the Poles and by the meddling West. Now, now I mean... This is a sort of crazy thesis. It's 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 bad history. But what what's striking about it is is firstly that Putin blames Lenin for creating Ukraine as a sort of separate socialist republic in the 1920s, but is also channeling uh, classical ideas of Russian imperialism and orthodoxy from about the 1830s, as if he's Nicholas the First. You know, he's sort mm. of Tsar Putin the First, Tsar Vladimir the First, um, and it would be kind of darkly amusing were it not for the fact that this essay became a predicate for, for war. And I was um, talking to, to a Ukrainian intelligence sort of chief just in the run-up to all this, and he, he was saying the, the thing about the Russians is that, 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 that we've always understood them better than they've understood us. And part of that is language. All the Ukrainians are bilingual. They speak Russian and Ukrainian. Russians just speak Russian. And part of it is this sort of patronizing assumption that Ukrainians are essentially rural Russians. They're like the sort of stupid cousins. And, right. and of course they weren't. And that's why they resisted. Yeah. I mean, as you say, there's this heroic story of, of resistance and of pushing them back from Kiev. And then pretty soon the Russians, as we discover, start committing pretty appalling war crimes in Bukha and Mariupol. They probably both deserve uh, some attention. I mean, Buka, you were able to go into, as were other foreign correspondents. Uh, Mariupol, I believe nobody yet knows fully what happened there. I mean, but you, you think that something like 20,000 civilians have died there, and which would be a, a war crime of absolutely historic proportions. Y yes, I, I mean... I mean, these were hard chapters to write. I mean, I write about Butcher. I write about um, Mariupol. I mean, you know, I, I, I had left by the time the Russians encircled the city um, in late February and early March. But I was in touch with people I'd met. I just met on my trip and I interviewed survivors who managed to escape, including a woman with her kids who'd been in the drama theater with about 600 other women when it was bombed by a Russian warplane, killing around 500 people, including pregnant women as well. And yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard to talk about. I mean, first of all, we, we have to acknowledge the scale of the, the conflict as a whole. I mean, this is the biggest war in Europe since 1945 for 80 years. It's the biggest refugee crisis. And Mariupol became uh, a, a Guernica, I mean, or, or an Antwerp. Or, I mean, it, it was, it's been completely destroyed. I mean, it was pulverized by, by um, Russian aviation, by Russian ship missiles, by, by tanks, by artillery um, at a time when it was full of civilians and it, it just it just kind of haunts me i mean when i was there i saw um i saw a play by patriotic ukrainians in, in mariupol's aerodrome um and that they were it was a sort of traditional christmas morality play they had the devil they had death they had um someone playing putin uh, with with horns 
and I saw this play and that evening I went for a meal uh, in a in a crowded Mariupol restaurant with women um, with, with a live band with women sort of dancing and the men looking embarrassed. I, I mean, it was it, it, the whole thing was kind of surreal. And, and thinking back about that afterwards, sure, fa fanciful or not, I could sort of almost I imagine the sort of figure of death going through the the, the restaurant because essentially about I, I mean we don't know the precise number, but we we, we know there's a list of thousands of people who were killed, some of whom were buried in courtyards, some of whom were buried in playgrounds, some of whom are still under the rubble. And, and one just episode haunts me. There was a volunteer I met called Anatoly Lazar. And I, I write about him in the book. Nice guy. We talked about, about Dostoevsky. We talked about, you know, Russian literature. He took me to the front line. And then he called me, or I rang him about a weekend, and he said, we're in circle, but we're fighting. It's going to be okay. And then he rang me about another week later, and he said, um, can you get my wife and kids out of Mariupol? Can you, can you, can you get them out? And I said, look, I'm really sorry, Anatoly. You know, I can't. I can write about your situation, but I, I'm not sure there's much I can do. And, and then he called me about another week later, and the connection was terrible. By that point, there was no electricity. There was snow. And I just heard the wind whipping off the Sea of Azov. And, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't hear him. Um, it was just this emptiness and after Mariupol fell, you know, I looked for him among the dead. There's a long list of dead, thousands of names. And I looked for him among the living and I couldn't find him. He, he was lost. And, and I just, I feel guilty. I, 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 you know, perhaps I shouldn't feel guilty, but I feel guilty. Yeah. I mean, I was going to actually ask you about, about yourself, you know, because I think that Covering these wars, uh, obviously, there's a, a strong element of personal risk, but also, you know, other war correspondents have talked about, you know, suffering from tra traumatics, you know, uh, from trauma, from from the horrors of the things that you've seen. And you write about somebody killed in in Butcher, um, you know, I think of, of, of Volodymyr, and you said that his death, his death, also haunted you afterwards. I mean, you seem, you know, on the surface, okay, but, but uh, yeah, how do you keep going back and wa watching all these horrors? There must be a, something in you that thinks, uh, you know, maybe I'll just go back to Britain and, uh, you know, turn away. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, and, and thank you for it. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think the thing that, that is important is to focus on Ukrainians. I, I mean, yeah. they're, they're the heroes of the story. They're the people writing an, an extraordinary chapter in, in, in their history, which will be talked about for generations. And, and... I think what's happening in Ukraine more broadly is decolonization. I mean, it's the, it's a kind of anti-Soviet, anti-Russian revolt after decades, you might say, sort of centuries of, of repression, long periods where, where the Ukrainian uh, language was banned by Tsarist Russia, um, the, the, the famine of 1932 and 1933 engineered by Stalin to, to punish Ukrainians in which about 4 million people are, you know, are thought to have died. Um, and... This is a kind of this. This is not just a war. It's a, it's a it's a it's an emancipatory moment actually. Where where I mean, as I argue in the in the last chapter of the book, Ukraine is um, I call it a proven state. I mean, we can talk about the war and its slightly outcome, but I sort of feel as a nation, as a country, Ukrainians have sort of proven themselves to each other and to the world. And so, you know, my, my job I think is just to kind of report on on not just on the geopolitics. I mean, you and I both write on geopolitics, but on the human story. On, on the fate of individuals who, you know, unlike us war correspondents, don't have an opportunity to to flee or take breaks, um, and 
you know, I've traveled around the, the front lines all over, most recently in Hezon uh, province. And I think my job is just to 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 talk to them and to report what they say, obviously to contextualize as well and to, to write kind of colorful and vivid Dis dispatches and and th these conversations stick with you. I mean, I just think of one in 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 Kazan and and I went to this village called Mialova. No, I was the first journalist to get there. Talked to a talked to a guy, um, and he he gave me the tour. He showed me the school the Russians had blown up as they retreated, and uh, th there were booms going on. Uh, there were grab missiles going out. There was there were Russian rockets coming in from across the Dnieper River, and he said, "Look, you know, we've gone back thirty years." We we have no electricity, we have no water, we have no gas, we have no money, we, you know, we have nothing, but we are free. We, we are free. And and all, he also told me that he he had sat secretly in his roof, watched the watched the Russian heavy um, armor coming by and had, had sent texted the coordinates to his son who was in Dnipro in Ukrainian controlled territory, who passed them on to the Ukrainian military. So so the only way you get those stories is is by being there. So I sort of think our job is not to big ourselves up as, as foreign correspondents, but of to course. just tell the human story and, and just lastly, to stick with it, to stick with it. it w at a time, you know, for example, when the caravan may have moved on, I think we have to keep reporting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do, do you sense and do you fear that the caravan may be moving on? That I mean, in not that, well, certainly the at the beginning of the war, it dominated the nightly news in, in the UK, probably in other Western countries. Now it's sort of down the bulletin. Um, is that a danger for Ukraine? I mean, I think it is a danger for Ukraine. Uh, I think um, <clears throat> I think it's one that the Ukrainian government is well aware of. Uh, Zelensky and his team are, are constantly trying to find ways to communicate with the world, to take take Ukraine's story out there. I mean, he, he did this extraordinary virtual tour of national parliaments, um, you know, he's talked to the Financial Times. I mean, he's he's given a whole series of, oh, sure. of, of, of interviews. Um, uh, yeah, Glastonbury. Uh, I imagine he may pop up at the you know other events, kind of in, in the coming weeks and 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 months. But to be honest with you, I, I don't sense. I mean, I've done a few events since the book came out, and I don't sense Ukraine fatigue. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, I think there's still continuing interest. There are so many people in the the UK and beyond who have been hosting refugees, mm -hmm. other people who have been supporting them, the Ukrainians living abroad who, who are deeply engaged by what's going on or in touch with family all the time, including today when another 70 missiles were fired by Russia at Kiev and other cities. I, I mean, I think for now, the kind of anti-Kremlin international coalition, the thing you've been writing about a lot, is holding up pretty well, now it doesn't include everybody. That there's the global South, India, China, yeah. South Africa, who are not part of that coalition. But but for now, I, I think it's there. And you know what what Zelensky says to go back to one of your sort of previous questions is: this is not our struggle. This is not just a local war or a regional war. Uh, sorry, th th this is everybody's struggle. It's a kind of universal struggle because essentially, the war is for the future of the world order. Wh whether we have a we have a kind of nihilistic or you can say 19th century world order where, where big states can can smash up smaller states and roll over them, which yeah. is what Putin wants, where you've got spheres of influence. Um, uh, or or whether, whether, you know, however imperfectly you 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 have a, a, a world where international law sort of works, but where, where it's all about sort of human rights and, 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 and decency. And, and what the Ukrainians want is they just want to be able to allow to live freely and make their own sovereign choices and to integrate with the West. And this is something Vladimir Putin is trying to stop. 
Yeah. Now, um, in about 10 minutes, I'm going to go to the q and I can see that 10 questions have already arrived. I haven't read them yet, uh, but we'll do so in a sec. Uh, just to tell the, and I gather there's something like 400 people online, uh, which does tell you something about the lack of Ukraine fatigue and the interest in your book. But uh, others who want to put questions do type away in the, in the question function, and um, I'll relay some of them to Luke in about t- 10 minutes or so. But just pr- maybe the last question from me before I, I turn to the audience. Um, What's your, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, you do a masterful job, as you say, of telling the, the human stories behind uh, behind all of this, and it's crucial not to lose sight of those. But when you look at the kind of overall situation of the war, um, what's your view of it? I mean, it's gone through several cycles, hasn't it? There was the initial Ukraine's going to lose in a week, then, oh my God, Russia's dropped back from Kiev, then they seem to be doing a bit better, and then, you know, Kharkiv, Kherson. And I think until maybe a couple of weeks ago, my sense was that people felt that Russia was kind of, not if not flattened its back, really doing badly, and that Ukraine was going forward. Now, Russia seems to have discovered a very destructive, effective new weapon, which is the destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, people are talking about a stalemate going forward. Uh, you know both countries very well. I mean, you've been banned now from Russia, but uh, you've lived there for a long time. Um, how do you you see this, you know, th- this playing out? Do, do, do you think that Russia may have more resilience than we've given it credit for? Or, or do you think that, that actually Ukraine will win, whatever that means? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, there's sort of you know, several answers to that. I, I mean, from from a sort of a strategic point of view, it's pretty clear that Russia has lost, has basically lost. In other words, the the, the original goal, which was to capture Kiev, kill Zelensky, in, install you know a pro-Russian, pro-peace government, and annex everything, um, that that has failed. That mm. that's partly failed, and, and Russia has lost about half of the territory that it. That it seized in the early weeks of the ca- campaign. I mean, it, it's it's been it's been kicked out. It, it hasn't really worked as a military operation. Now it's been through several iterations, as you say, and it seems to me now that Russia's focus is very much on the Donbass. We, we, we've seen these extraordinary sort of unidirectional attacks on Bakhmut. Well, I've been to Bakhmut in the summer. It was pretty pretty hairy, scary trip. But and the, the Russians are now on the edges of Bakhmut. It's 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 a town and it's a town in Donbass, but it, it's not hugely strategically significant. But I think I think it's politically significant because Putin has decided that if he can conquer the Donbass or most of it, he can sell victory to the Russian people um, and say that, that his special military oper- operation has been a success. Meanwhile, we, we've seen uh, you know j- just today we, we've seen seen uh, Ukrainian attacks deep into Russian territory using it, it seems some kind of long range drone strike drone um and the ukrainians all the way through have shown a creativity a sort of innovative capacity which few had expected i mean they've blown up the bridge to crimea the russian bridge they've been attacking crimean targets they've sunk the moskva in in the spring this invincible russian warship um and i think what i expect in the spring uh is is further ukrainian advances uh possibly recapturing more territory in the south. I think the east will be bitterly contested. Um, I don't see this war ending anytime soon. I think Putin still thinks he can kind of win, although what, what winning is, I'm, I'm not entirely sure from his perspective. But, but I, think, I think the Ukrainians 
will keep going forward, if only because they're just so motivated. I mean, Zelensky was talking about this in his latest address this morning, and he was saying correctly the difference between us and them is, is we are motivated. And you talk to any Ukrainian soldier on the battlefield, and you say, well, why are you, why are you fighting? Uh, and they say, I'm defending my, my family, my, my wife, my kids, my village, my home, my language, you know, our way of life, my country. And, you know, the Russians, by contrast, it's not very clear what they're fighting for, really. Um, so I think, I think Ukraine will prevail, but that's not the same as deoccupying everything. Um, but it's going to be a long war. Mm. And just a last thing before I come to the, the audience. We've heard a lot about Russian losses. Um, I think at some point the Pentagon said they'd lost between 80 and 100,000 people killed or wounded. But Ukrainian losses have also been heavy, haven't they? And it's a smaller country. Um, you know, can they can they keep it up? Yeah, I, I mean, Ukraine is acknowledging about nine thousand soldiers killed in action, many more wounded. I mean, I mean, the figure may be higher. I I I, I don't know. I'm in no position to say. All, all I can say is that it's terrible. Um, it's sad uh there, there are so many kids who've lost lost parents um i mean just uh, you know on my last trip I, I i went around i was just walking past the main cathedral uh um uh, orthodox church of ukraine cathedral I in the center of kiev and there was a funeral going on there are funerals happening all the time you, you know there's an open coffin that's the sort of tradition with family there and there's also a sort of tradition which the ukrainians have adopted since 2014 which is I, I just think it's incredibly moving. I, I can scarcely see it, you know, w without churning up. But but when fallen soldiers come back to their villages or their communities, the entire population kneels. So you get men, women, children, old ladies kneeling by the side of the road as the, this cortege goes past. And it's not, you know, it's it's not not five or ten people. It's hundreds of people kneeling. And, and the price has been enormous. I mean, some of the best and brightest people, you know, have been killed. Uh, I mean, not, not that they can any more or any less than anyone else, but, but you know, some, the people who are dying are not just professional soldiers. Quite often they're journalists or IT workers or ballet dancers or, or whatever, people who've gone and fought. And um, it's, an, it's an incredible cost. It's an incredible cost. And I, I think this calculation will inform the shape of Ukraine's offenses going forward. Because what the Ukrainians are very keen to avoid are the sort of suicidal operations that the Russians are doing, where they're throwing hundreds, thousands of newly mobilized guys into the Minsa, very often for, for really meager territorial gains. Um, Zelensky is mindful of this, but you know what choice do they have? I mean, they say for us, it's existential. If we stop fighting, we are subjugated and we become slaves. They don't want to be slaves. They want to be free and they want to be independent. Yeah. Very well put. Let me just uh, go to the questions. I'll kind of group them because there's uh, there are quite a few that are that are that are similar in um, in kind of intent. Um, a few about Putin. Uh, one, the first question to come up was uh, from a guy called Steve. He says, "Can we assume that Putin just miscalculated when he thought that that?" Kiev would would fall, and the second one from somebody else, an anonymous question, saying, "Do you think he'll eventually go nuclear?" Um, and I, if I add a third one, the other question that you often hear about Putin, and again, none of us have a complete answer, but I'd be interested to hear what you say. How secure is his position? Yeah, they're, they're all really um, fascinating 
uh, questions, and it's quite interesting. You, we, you know, we're, we're here. We are in 2022, and actually, I wonder, uh, Gideon. I mean, you, you've you've written a lot of books and read a lot of history. It, to, to me, it almost feels as if there's less reliable information now than there was in the late Soviet Union about Brezhnev from the various sort of gerontocratic Politburo leaders. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's plenty of speculation. There's a lot of disinformation and rumor. Very hard to, to know. But I think what we can say about the invasion is that, you know, there's a paradox here that Putin thinks he is, he thinks he's a brilliant spy. You know, he, he thinks he's a kind of intelligence maestro. Actually, he was a rather mediocre spy. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of cool, clever Soviet spies got New York or Paris or, or London, and he got Dresden, you know, the second city in, in East Germany. Um, and nonetheless, uh, yeah, I, I think the FSB, I think like all dictators, essentially he began to lose touch with reality and, and essentially his, his own FSB spy agency, which was liaising with, with you know, U Russian assets inside Ukraine, told him what he wanted to hear. And what he wanted to hear was that Ukrainians would essentially rise up and welcome Russian troops and that there was a corrupt pro-Western, decadent, you know, thin layer at the top, the Zelensky government, and, and that most Ukrainians were just waiting to be liberated from their Nazi rulers. Now, this is what you get on Russian state TV, and Putin appears to have believed that that was the reality. And of course, it isn't the reality. And I think the mistake he made was to think that the Ukraine of 2022 was, was the Ukraine of 2014, when, when there was a kind of pro-Russian minority, um, which... He took advantage of eight years later and after a kind of horrendous war. In fact, Putin, more than anyone else, had kind of helped um, consolidate sort of pro-Ukrainian patriotic feeling. Um, and, you know, when those troops came in, that they, they were met with fire and fury, not just from the Ukrainian army, but from from everybody o on the nuclear aspect. My, my, my idea, which is completely, you know, unempirical and, and feel free to disagree with it, is I am skeptical that, that Putin will use a, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine because his foreign intelligence chief tells him every week that, that they have, you know, foiled three plots by the Americans to kill him. I mean, Putin is conspiratorial. He's paranoid. He believes the West wants to wants to destroy him. And so I think his I think were he to use a tactical nuclear weapon, his fear is the Americans would seek him out and drop a bomb on his head. Mm. And and you know the, the one image we have of Putin over the last two years, which we know is real, is of a small man at the end of a long table, a very long table, talking to his chief of staff or whoever, and of a man who's clearly paranoid about his personal survival and health. So I, I don't see a nuclear scenario. Um, and as for palace coup. You know, we, we've all we've all watched the death of Stalin. I mean, it's a wonderful film by Amanda Iannucci. And if only life were were like a kind of Netflix drama with a with a Aristotelian resolution and a, a kind of body in a courtyard. But I, unfortunately, I just don't see it. I think, you know, we'd like Putin to shuffle off. Uh, or, or the, you know, the, the verb Ukrainians use to me always is croak. You know, but I don't think he's going to croak, unfortunately, anytime soon. And I think, you know, policymakers, observers, Western governments. Have to have to go with the assumption that Putin is going to be there for for some time to come. Yeah, and just a quick word from me because I'm certainly I've uh, sort of reporting on the diplomatic end of what's in the West and so on. I've certainly been struck by whether rightly or wrongly the Americans have been very preoccupied from the beginning by the threat of nuclear war, um, and I think it has constrained the aid that they've given to the Ukrainians. The, for example, the limiting of the range of the missiles they've given them and and so on um 
And, you know, as on Putin and the death wish, well, I put this to a, to a, to a Russian friend, I'm sure you know him, Sasha Gabuev, and he said, well, you know, they've got m loads and loads of nuclear bunkers in Moscow, which they've been sort of dusting down and preparing. So he probably would be well up safely underground by the time they used a tactical nuclear weapon. But I think even the people who are most alarmed by it think it's, you know, at most, I don't know if this is reassuring, one in four that he would use it in extremis. Uh, but, you know, these numbers are probably meaningless. But it, it is interesting, just in, if it sounds a bit sort of bloodless, but uh, in terms of international relations, I don't think we've ever seen a kind of nuclear standoff quite like this. Somebody using nuclear weapons, not just to deter, but as cover for aggression, to, to, to deter the response, which kind of brings me to the next set of questions, um, where lots of people are saying, what should the West be doing? You know, are we doing enough in terms of material aid, diplomatic aid, military aid, uh, or even individuals who are watching and 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 upset about uh, what's going on and would like to help? What can you say? Yeah, I, 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 first of all, I think we should we need to acknowledge our error, um, and it's been quite interesting. I don't know how you see it, but there's been quite a lot of finger pointing from the Anglo-Saxons that the, the Germans, for example, the fact they became addicted to um, Russian gas and and did Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, uh, and, and the, a, a Angela Merkel, well, and, and Gerhard Schröder, but basically successive German leaders, um, made the mistake of thinking that you could you could decouple economics and, you know, trade from from politics and from the fact that, that actually the, the Putin regime was lurching towards where it is now, which I think I would describe as totalitarian. Essentially, I mean, dissent has become impossible, and it's it's not quite the 1930s again, but I, I think it's more oppressive, certainly than the late Soviet period. Um, and so, so that th th that perhaps was the German mistake, but but I think we in the UK ma made a similar mistake, po possibly a worse mistake, which is that we became addicted to Russian money, uh, and actually, the Russian money over over the past couple of decades has has um, cascaded into into this country um, in various forms. We've seen oligarchs buying football clubs, buying newspapers, buying peers of the realm, essentially by giving them jobs on boards. We've seen massive Russian-linked donations to the Conservative Party. And we've also seen plenty of evidence of Russian malfeasance in the, in the shape of, of murders of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, about whom I wrote a book, a very expensive poison, Sergei Skripal, a few years ago and so on. And, and actually the response up until the full full scale invasion of Ukraine in February has has been weak and conventional, um, and really has confirmed Putin in his belief that the 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 the, the West is irresolute, poorly led, and the politicians can be bought if the price is right. So I think what we have to do is con conclusively disprove that idea um, that we're 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 basically feeble, but by continuing to support Ukraine, as I was saying earlier, but also su supporting Ukraine militarily. And, and I, think, I think the Biden calculation that we could go to nuclear escalation, I think we're beyond that. I think now the Ukrainians need to win. I mean, they, they, they prove that they are resilient, that they are, they are clever, that they are creative. We need to give them weapons so they can deoccupy more of their territory, um, whether it's patriots, whether it's long-range artillery, whether it's tanks, we've got, we've got to keep going. First of all, and, and also just to continue to support Ukrainians morally. And just so one, one last thing on this: with the person we haven't mentioned so far this evening, Gideon, is, is Boris Johnson. Now, yes, now it may surprise, may surprise you to learn, to learn that I'm not exactly a fan of Boris Johnson, but 
on Ukraine, I think he got it right. And all of my attempts to, to, to tell my Ukrainian friends that he's a liar and he's a charlatan <laughs> and he's an immoralist count for nothing because they just say, we love Boris Johnson. He gave us anti-tank weapons. He supported us. He's the most popular Western politician in Ukraine by several million miles. And you walk through Kiev, you go past an art gallery, there are pictures of Boris Johnson dressed as a Cossack playing a, playing a, a lute. There, there are murals of him all over buildings. There's even a rap song, Gideon, I kid you not, um, which is quite a good rap song. You hear it whenever you get into a taxi, which is a, a you know, addictive kind of beat. And then a chorus line of Boris Johnson saying, Dobry Jen, everybody, which means good day, everybody. So, so I mean, I look, did it cause you to revise your opinion of Boris Johnson? Yeah, I mean, it did a little bit because he was there in April. Um, I was there in April. Uh, Kiev was empty. It was dangerous. There was nowhere to eat. There was an APM curfew. You, you, you know, you wondered if, if and when you were going to be whacked by a Russian missile, and he came. Mm. I think I think he he and actually any any you know Western politician who goes to Kiev at the moment deserves some respect, whatever you think of their domestic politics, for for being personally brave. And of course, of course, of course, you know any British prime minister and they keep changing every five minutes. What could be better than than shaking hands with Volodymyr Zelensky and hoping that some of Zelensky's stardust falls on top of your head? Mm. But I think in Johnson's case, it, it, was, it probably was one of the few things he genuinely felt pretty deeply about. Yeah, I mean, I think probably he was sincere. Uh, and he was talking about Ukrainian victory back in February, March, when no one was talking about Ukrainian victory. And mm. Ukrainians remember that. And, and that, that's why he's sort of so celebrated. And, and I think we need to keep thinking about Ukrainian victory, what form it might take, how we bring it about, uh, and, and, you know, going forward, how, how we deal with, or I would argue, contain this aggressive, revisionist, unpredictable Russia, where, where the Russian political elite, as, as one UK diplomat put it to me, he said, the problem with them is they don't think the way we think they should think. <laughs> yeah. Can I just press you, though, on what victory would look like? Because, you know, you said Putin's not going to fall. You know, we're not going to occupy Moscow. So doesn't that imply that at some point there's a deal of some sort, something that ends the war? Um, or are they driven militarily out of Crimea and just kind of give up? Uh, how do you see that going? Well, well, I mean, I think I think if there is a if there is a sort of dilemma for for the West, it will be let, let, let's let's go with an optimistic scenario where Ukraine manages to liberate more territory last ne, ne, so next year, most of the south, let's say, not all of the east, but perhaps more in Lugansk. Uh, perhaps the left bank of the Dnieper pushes towards the border with Crimea. You know, uh, d d is the West all in for the liberation of Crimea, or do they do they say, well, actually, look, you, you've kind of restored where you were in February 2022. Now is the moment to sit down with Putin. Now, um, what what Zelensky would say, I imagine, is you know, I know his speechwriter pretty well, is is that we cannot trust any peace deal with the Russians because Putin will merely use the sort of pause tactically to regroup, build up his forces again with a view to another attack and, and maybe another attempt to seize Kiev, which I don't rule out at all. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have to keep going until R Russia is completely destroyed. I mean, all I would say is that I think it's up to Ukrainians to define victory, that they've suffered, that so they've lost so much by this point, they have to explain 
you know, make the case. And if they wish to, to continue and liberate Crimea as well, then I feel that we should support them. But ultimately, it's their call. Right. Um, a kind of um, up-to-date question from Kirsty Lang. She says, what's your reaction to today's Ukrainian drone attacks on Russian military bases deep inside Russia? Funnily enough, um, uh, Kirsty, I've, I've just, I've just, I, I, I made a fatal mistake, um, Gideon. You'll, you'll know about this uh, of coming into the Guardian office to do this um, uh, event, and I, I, I was ten seconds into the building when, for my foreign editors, saw me like some kind of human hawk, and just asked me to write a kind of analysis piece on this latest strike. And, and I would just sort of say two things. One is my kind of Ukrainian contacts have been hinting for a while that something was coming and I didn't quite, and you never quite know what the something is. What the something appears to be are, are drones with long range capability, are capable of hitting targets deep inside Russia, possibly with a thousand kilometer radius. And w will that stop Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure? No, it won't, but might it give the Russians pause for thought? I think, I think yes, it will. And it's just a further example um, of Ukrainian ingenuity. I, I mean, some of the stuff they've been doing, I mean, the, th the, the thing that most uh, surprised me were, were these sea drones. I don't know if you saw the footage when they had, uh, the U Ukraine used air and sea drones to uh, attack Sevastopol Harbor in occupied Crimea. But it was like something out of James Bond. I mean, there was a live video feed from this drone. There was a Russian helicopter that had picked it up and was trying to shoot it out the water. You could see the machine gun bullets splooshing into the, into the waves. And these drones blew up or appeared to have damaged at least two or three frigates. Um, and it's, you know, reporting on this war is this extraordinary mashup between First World War trenches, which I visited, uh, which look like something out of 19, 1915 with mud and with, with underground shelters and with mortars. And, and then you climb out of the trench and you see three guys playing with a joystick. Uh, and they're the drone operators sending coordinates of the Russian positions to the artillery guys somewhere else down the line. And, and they're being transmitted by, by one of Elon Musk's Starlink satellite systems, which is stuck under a tree. Uh, and, uh, you know, my sense is that the Ukrainians, you know, yes, they're outgunned, but they're just so much nimbler. They're using technology. They're brilliant at military logistics. They've got people who've come back from Silicon Valley to work on this. I, I just think they will continue to kind of menace and harry Russian targets wherever they are. Yeah, actually, you've part, half answered the question, uh, which another question which I was going to pick off from the thing, but only half, so I'll give you the chance to have another go at it. Somebody says, can we really expect the Ukrainians to win with one arm tied behind their back? In other words, you know, Russia's allowed to bomb Ukrainian infrastructure, but the West would be quite horrified if, you know, Ukrainians, if they started to attack Russian infrastructure around Moscow. So it's not a fair fight, is it? It's not an even fight. It's not a fair fight, but but I, I think today, to go back to Kirsty's point, I mean, I t today just shows Ukraine's growing capabilities. And there's a really interesting conversation. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me afterwards, especially if they work for a Ministry of Defense, let's say, or a secret organization, I'm, I'm luke.harding at theguardian.com, is, is how much Ukraine tells the Americans and, and, and the Brits and, and their European allies of what they're doing in advance when it comes to targeting inside Russia. But I think we're going to see more of what we saw today. Um, there's got to be a quid pro quo for all these cruise missiles smashing up um, you know, Ukrainian le electricity infrastructure. You imagine the Ukrainians will retaliate. I mean, what they've done so far, which has been very smart, is unlike the Russians who've killed civilians 
you know, indiscriminately without much caring. The, the Ukrainians, by and large, have just been targeted the Russian, the Russian military. But I can see that them doing that with a much greater radius and range, um, and and striking more targets inside the Russian Federation. Yeah, for what it's worth, and it may not be worth very much. But when I asked the Americans on a recent trip to to Washington, had they known that the uh, Ukrainians were going to attack the Kerch Bridge, they said no. But you know, who knows? Um, um, and um, on the uh, another question that's there's, there's several um, about food. Uh, I think people, you know, you you raise the horrible memory of the famine in the 1930s. Um, obviously, the harvest is going to be affected by what's go- by the war. Um, do the Ukrainians have enough food to keep going? I mean, I mean, the Ukrainians have enough food. I mean, I mean, if you drive if you drive through Ukraine in summer, I mean, it is amazing. I mean, you could go for hundreds of miles where you just go past these massive Soviet era fields full of sunflowers or or, or other crops. I, I mean, one of the reasons that Ukraine has always been such a sort of desirable place for conquest over, over the centuries is its earth. It just just has this astonishing earth. You, you put something in it and it, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk. It just grows enormously and, and vigorously. So they have enough food. The, the problem is the economy has been shattered. I mean, what, what, what Russia has done by destroying electricity is, is effectively destroyed the economy. I mean, it's how can you work when you've got no internet connection? How can you run a business? How can you you know, talk to your, to your, to your partners outside the country. Um, and how can you export? I mean, the grain corridor initiative has, has, has worked pretty well. I mean, the, the grain has been going out to other places, but most of the economy is, 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 is ruined. And I, I think just to go, go back to the sort of war and its outcome, Putin's calculation is that this is a long attritional conflict where he will just grind Ukraine into the dirt and, and calculate that sooner or later the West will flake out, as it has done in the past. So, so uh, you know, that, that has not to happen. But I think if Ukraine can survive this winter, and I think it will survive this winter, I, I, you know, I, I think things will move on the battlefield and in other um, arenas um, from about February, March onwards. Yeah. So we've only got about four minutes left, but that leads naturally on to uh, the last question. Russian resilience. I mean, again, you've been in Ukraine for uh, not Russia, but what's your sense? How long can they keep this up? I mean, they've had heavy casualties, and we don't really know. We don't. I don't have a sense of Russian public opinion and how much that even is a factor. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean it, yeah, again, my, my view is it, it's not it's not hugely empirical, but it's 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 a hard thing to measure. My, my, my sense from from talking to to Russians, most of them now living in exile. I mean, there are many people who opposed the war and have fled some a while ago, some since since March. But I, my, my sense is that, that 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 there is or or that there was a sort of passionate minority against the war in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. I mean, we saw a lot of anti-war demonstrations early on, with upward of sort of fifteen thousand people arrested. Uh, there's a sort of minority who passionately support the war, uh, and that's definitely the view which is promulgated on state TV. Um, and you have a majority who kind of who, who do support, but but kind of more 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 passively. Um, and th- that that's you know briefly Gideon is because propaganda works, and you know we've seen over the years massive de- dehumanizing rhetoric which has portrayed Ukrainians as. Unpeople as 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 vermin as as, 
scum. Uh, and um, we've also seen, you know, the first thing that Putin did when he took over two decades ago was control TV. So the message is very tightly controlled. Propaganda works. Uh, and unfortunately, most Russians support it. And, and what, what's weird is you've got a lot of young men who have fled to other countries, principally, you know, Georgia and Armenia, but they haven't crossed the border and become anti-war activists. Many of them support the war. They just don't want to die in it themselves. Mm. So, so I, I, think, I think Putin, unfortunately, has a pretty close lid on what's going on inside Russia. And he, he can rely on, you know, sort of pretty strong domestic report going, domestic support going forward. Well, I always like to try and end on a positive note, so I failed there because that's a slightly gloomy note. But, Luke, thanks for an absolutely fascinating hour of discussion. Thanks to everyone who posed questions in the chat. Uh, sorry if I didn't get to them all, but there, there were many of you who wanted to participate, which I think is a tribute to uh, how much interest Luke's book has aroused. So let me uh, just thank you for last time and hand back uh, to Can I just say, say one last thing, which is yeah, just who's, who's watching, that, that, you know, thank you, thank you very much for me. But just, just to say that Ukraine needs your continuing su su support and empathy. So, you know, don't change channel. Do think about it. U Ukrainians, some of them watching, they're just like you and me, and, and they deserve our engagement um, now and next year as well. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. And, and uh, back to 5 by 15 and to Jack, just to round it up. Thank you so much, Luke and Gideon, for that conversation. And, and thank you, Luke, for that message, which is such a powerful, important one for us to hear. Um, that was such a compelling and informative conversation. It was fantastic to hear your insights and, and you know, that you both went into it with such depth. And, and thank you, too, to our audience for all of your great questions. It was excellent to see, as you mentioned, that we're a long way from Ukraine fatigue and it's vital that we, we stay that way. Um, please do purchase copies of Gideon's and Luke's books. Um, author royalties from Invasion will go to the DEC's Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal. And there's more information about the books in the chat. Just a quick shout out for what we have coming up in the new year at 5 by 15 we have the first event in an exciting new partnership with Rathbones, which is a continuation of the Earth Convention series back that started back in 2020. The theme for the new series is the four elements, and our first panel event on the 16th of January will be about Earth, featuring Misha Glennie, Isabella Tree, Philip Limbury, and Sophie Lawrence in conversation with our own Rosie Boycott. You won't want to miss it. A few days later, on the 19th of January, we have an in-person charity gala event at the Tabernacle in Notting Hill to celebrate 15 years of the amazing School Food Matters with Andy Oliver, Tim Spector, Dan Saladino, Dermot Gavin and Rima Reid. There'll be some fascinating reflections on food, culture and policy, and we'll have some school children there with us on the night serving canapes. All ticket sales will go to School Food Matters, all the profits, so please do bag yourselves a ticket while they're still available. As ever, all of the info and the ticket links are available on the 5 by 15 website. Thank you all very much, and thank you again, Luke and Gideon, for your fantastic discussion. Good night.